I'm going to read you a prophecy from 2009. And um, it's uh, the late David Wilkerson, who a lot of people believe, I, I believe myself, was a modern-day prophet of our generation. But here's the thing. He, he, he really nails it. What's going on right now in 2009? But the thing about it is I want, I want to... The reason I'm reading it, there's a, been a lot of prophecies that called this, but a lot of, sometimes you have to, you know, you can listen to a prophecy and half of it can be straight from God and the other half of it, the, the, the vessel puts his own stuff in it. You know what I mean? You have to, Grace Ryerson Ruse says, I was just reading a book on spiritual warfare this week. You have to try the spirits. You have to, you have to see if that prophecy lines up with the word of God, Okay. Which part of this does, and I believe part of it doesn't, and we're going to get into that in the sermon. In 2009, he spoke, the following is a statement made by David Wilkerson and has been confirmed and documented in videos. Here's what he said. All earth-shattering calamity is about to happen. An earth-shattering calamity. It's going to be so frightening, we're all going to tremble, even the godliest among us. He says, for 10 years, I've been warning about a 1,000 fires coming to the U.S. It will engulf the whole megaplex, all the big cities, major cities all across America will experience riots and blazing fires such as we saw in Watts, Los Angeles years ago. There will be riots and fires in cities worldwide. There will be looting, including in all the big cities of the country. What we are experiencing now, and he's talking about 2009, you know, the housing crash, right? He said it's not even a recession or depression compared to what is coming. And in my opinion, this is where he puts in his opinion, as God is judging the raging sins of America and the nations. He is destroying the secular foundations. And he goes into Jeremiah 18, 11, and 12. The prophet Jeremiah pleaded with wicked Israel, God is fashioning a calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back each of you from your evil way. Reform your ways and deeds. But they will say, it's hopeless, for we are going to follow our own plans, and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart, which is still part of the prophecy. Then in uh, Psalm eleven six, David warns, is still Mr. Wilkerson, upon the wicked will rain snares, coals of fire, burning, wind will be the portion of their cup. Why? David answered, because the Lord is righteous. This is a righteous judgment just as in the judgments of Sodom and in Noah's generation. What shall the righteous do? What about God's people, he asked. This is what he says. First, I give you practical word I've received from my own direction. If possible, lay in store a 30-day supply of non-perishable food. Many people have got six-month supplies, um, toiletries, and other essentials. In major cities, grocery stores are going to be emptied in an hour at the sign of an impending disaster. As for our spiritual reaction, we have two options. This is outlined in Psalm 11. We flee like a bird to a mountain, or as David says, he fixed his eyes on the Lord on his throne in heaven. That's called the throne of grace, that throne, all right? His eyes beholding, the, his eyelids testing the sons of men, he says, in the Lord 
I take refuge. I will say to my soul, no need to run, no need to hide. I will behold our Lord on his throne with his, eye, with his eye of tender, loving kindness, watching over every step I take, trusting that he will deliver his people, even through floods, fires, calamities, tests, trials of all kinds. I do not know when these things will come to pass, he says, but it is not far off. I have unburdened my soul to you. Do with the message as you choose. And so I'm here to tell you what we are going through. I'm going to prove it, all right? It's, it's, not, it's not the anger of God. It's not the wrath of God. It's not the, the judgment of God. It is not. And while this prophecy, among many others, called this, I just want to, you remember the chapter in Isaiah 53, right? The, the, the detailed crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. Um, just in detail, Isaiah 53. And then Isaiah 54 is the benefits, all right, of what we get from what he did in Isaiah 53. And so... Our first scripture is Isaiah 54, 9 in the King James. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. It's the same, you know? Remember how he swore and, and they did a rainbow that I'll never flood the earth again? That's what he's saying. I swore that. For as I've sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. You don't have to listen, worry about Hollywood and their movies and asteroids hitting the earth and the ocean you know, that's not going to happen. He swore it, okay? And, and, but I have sworn that I would not be rough with thee, and I would not rebuke you. Rebuke does not mean correct here, and we're going to get into that. He does correct. I'm going to explain how he corrects. But the thing about this chapter in Isaiah 54 is there's a catchphrase there's something that's got to happen with you for you to, I mean, if you read this chapter, there are just unbelievable benefits, benefits for your children, benefits for your life, coming right after the crucifixion of Jesus in Isaiah 53. I want to take you to Isaiah 54, 14, and 15. In righteousness, you shall be established. This is not your own works. This is not what you do, all right? A lot of people call Isaiah, from, from chapter 40 on, a New Testament prophet. Some people think two different people wrote the book because it changes so drastically starting with Isaiah 40. And so, in righteousness you shall be established. This is not Old Testament righteousness. This is New Testament righteousness. This is the righteousness of God, which is a gift Jesus gave you. He was sinless. He was perfectly righteous. And he turned around and he gave it to you. And God will never take that gift back. It's, it's something you can't lose. Romans 5, 17. Those who receive an abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness are the Christians that reign as kings and queens in life. Not the Christians that send the least. It does not say that. It's those who are ever presently receiving grace and the gift of righteousness. And this is what Isaiah is talking about. 
If you're established in righteousness, verse 14, you shall be far from oppression. You shall not fear, and terror shall never come near you. And then it goes on to say, you know how we say, oh, no weapon formed against us shall prosper. There's a catch. There's something that's got to happen for that. You have to be established in the gift of New Testament righteousness if you want no weapon formed against you to prosper. This is all in context. And every tongue that rises against you in judgment, you will condemn in the end. This is your heritage. And he says, their righteousness is of me. It's my righteousness. It's not yours. It's not your works. It's the works of Jesus, of what he did one chapter earlier. Just like Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, which is not heaven, and we'll get into that. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and what? And his righteousness, what he gave you as a gift. And I'm just going to explain that. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21, so we're Christ's ambassadors. God making his appeal as it were through us, we are as Christ's personal representatives. We beg you for his sake to lay hold of the divine favor now offered to you and be reconciled to God. Well, what is that? How do you lay hold of that? Next verse. For our sake, he made Christ virtually to be no sin who knew no sin. So that in him and through him, in other words, when you ask him into your heart, right, you might become, when you ask him into your heart, you automatically become and receive endued with, he views you as being in, and you are an example no matter what you did last night, of the righteousness of God. What is that? It says it in the Greek. What you ought to be. Not what you are. Not what you are. I'm, 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 I'm going to leave the service and eat a, a large pizza. It's already ordered. A whole pizza. All by myself. You, could, you know what? Technically, it's gluttony. Worry. Do you know worry is a sin? It's a form of fear. But see, through the righteousness, through the gift of righteousness, God views you through the eyes of Jesus. What he hands you, Jesus never sinned, right? And this is something that, this is not the same as Old Testament righteousness. E.W. Kenyon said, New Testament righteousness is defined as the ability to stand before God without any guilt or inferiority. You never have to feel inferior when you go to God. No matter what your works were, you don't have to f- feel inferior. And so what we ought to be approved and acceptable in right relationship with him, by the things we've done? No, by his goodness, is what verse 21 says. God wanted you to believe the fact that he will not be wrath, he will not be angry with you, and he will not rebuke you. He wanted you to be, believe it so bad that he swore an oath. He swore an oath. He swore because he wants you to believe what he's saying here. God does not swear. God does not need to swear. If, if I promised you that I was going to give you $20,000 and I'm going I'm to send it, I'm going to have it delivered to your house and you kind of look at me, right? And I have to say, I swear I'm going to do it. I swear I'm going to do it. And, and why do I need to swear? Because human beings lie, but God doesn't need to swear. 
because God does not lie. God cannot lie. God cannot cheat and God cannot lie. When you see God swearing in Isaiah 54, 9, it's a double-clad iron guarantee that that's what he says will happen. So we're in Isaiah 54 after what Jesus did on the cross was listed in detail in Isaiah 53. Most scholars believe that Isaiah 54 is the fruits of what we are supposed to receive. You should go home and read that. That's how we're supposed to be walking if you will believe it through the perfect work of Jesus on the cross. Am I yelling? Am I yelling online? So we have God swearing in Isaiah 54 that he would never be angry with you. He would never rebuke you. And we have after the death of his son, God is making a promise, swearing to never, never, be angry with you. Wouldn't you say knowing that God will never be angry with you? I can even argue right now, under what Jesus did on the cross, receiving that New Testament righteousness, he's not even displeased with you. Why would it say you're complete in him? Present tense, New Testament. You are complete right here in him as you're sitting there. We're talking about believing the right thing about God and the world is still the same but you being transformed. This, it makes it easier to love him, to have a close relationship with him when you know he's not angry at you, when he's not putting judgment on you, when he's not going to hurt you. He put it all on Jesus. Everything we were supposed to get, it gives you more confidence in his promises. So we have God swearing never to be angry with us because of the finished work of Jesus. You know, I can't swear to my kids that I'll never be angry with them. I can't, I, you know, he uses a relationship as our father as examples a lot of times. I could never swear to my kids, even at four and five years old, I'll never be angry with you. That's impossible. I love them deeply. I love them with a passion but I could never guarantee that for them. You know, I heard a guy with about 20,000 people in his church, been in the ministry about 50 years, bringing a passage out of Ephesians. It was an Assemblies of God church, and those are great, great churches. Many of those churches have done great things. And he was saying, for some certain sins, the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. That's what he said. Okay, if you don't have what I'm talking about settled in your heart, if you think God is displeased with you, if you think God is angry with you, if you think God's gonna judge you, if you think God puts things on you, right, then you'll never, you'll, you will spin your wheels in the world of Christianity because you'll always be wondering, should I even pray for that? Because I don't know if it's coming from him. What if he's putting this on me? You know what I'm saying? Well, what's the need of, for a devil? If he's going to have his foot on your neck, why do we even need a devil? If he's going to judge you, if he's going to come at you, you know, that umbrella of protection thing drives me batty. And there's some major preachers preach this. Oh, you, Jim, you go home, you eat that large piece. Got, he's got an umbrella of protection. But the minute you commit that sin of gluttony, 
The minute you drive 39 in a 35, yeah, not obeying the laws of the land is a sin. The minute you worry, the minute you fear, comes off. Really? That's no different than the law. That's no different than the old covenant. What's the difference? And so, um, if you don't have it settled in your heart, you're going to be very, very susceptible to the enemy. He'll make you think God is against you when God is for you. God said he'd never be angry with us and he'd never rebuke us. And that does not mean correct. God swore because of our human weaknesses. And some people will tell me, I believe your passage, Jim, in Isaiah 54, 9. But there are a few things that a believer will do that will make God angry with him. You know that passage in Ephesians that I talked about, the God's wrath comes on the children of disobedience for certain sins. Well, first of all, God is not the father of disobedience. Do you get what I'm saying? If he's going to call us the children of disobedience, then who's our father? You're calling God disobedience. You're calling God the father of disobedience. We're not children of disobedience. We're children of God. That verse is referring to the people of the world who do not have Jesus in their hearts. There's a guy that came up to me one time last summer after a service, and I felt like he was kind of trying to trip me up. And so he, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. We could spend like a four-week series on all these scriptures. Uh, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 12, Galatians 5, where people just pick a scripture and say, bad things are coming. Totally out of context, just like this. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. First of all, the kingdom of God is not heaven. I'm going to prove it. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, covetous. Remember, Paul, covetousness was what tripped Paul up in Romans 7. Okay? Nor drunkards, nor revilers, extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So the guy says to me, you don't think this is referring to believers? I said, what do you think? He said, I think it is. I said, I know this passage. Read the next scripture. Read the next scripture. The very next scripture, 1 Corinthians 9, 11. Remember, he's writing to the Corinthians now. Do they not have problems? Right? As such were some of you, but right now, present tense, you're washed. Present tense, you're sanctified. Same word as holy. Same word as holy in the Greek. But you're justified. You are righteous. That's the same word as righteous every time you see justified. In the name of the Lord. And the, the Amplified really spells it out. And such were some of you at one time. Purified, but, but you are washed clean, purified by a complete atonement for sin and made free from the guilt of sin. Not, not a half atonement, a complete atonement. And you were consecrated, set apart, hallowed. You were justified, pronounced righteous by trusting in the name of the Lord. So you can see how people just grab two scriptures and run with it. Romans 14, 17, because there's a scripture in Galatians 5 that we spent 
about 15 minutes addressing on Facebook a couple weeks ago. It says, I'm going to listen. It basically, it defines the kingdom of God. It says what it is not. It's not food and drink one likes, but instead it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If the kingdom of God was heaven, I think it would say it right there. It is not heaven. It's not defined as heaven. You're not going to find it defined as heaven. It says you are currently washed and sanctified. It's not talking about Christians. It's talking about people of the world or what some Christians used to be. Remember how that's, that verse started? What you once were. Some of you were. God has made a way for us to come under a new covenant and there is no anger, no judgment, and no condemnation. I mean, you've got people taking all kinds of verses in Hebrews and Galatians out of context, taking those scriptures out of context, and it just looks like God's confused. That he can't make up his mind if you're really redeemed or not. If Jesus really died for your sin or not. If anyone ever gives you the impression that God can be angry with you or is gonna judge you or gonna hurt you in any way and you're a believer, you've gotta throw it out. I'm not saying you can't hear that guy, but what Brother Hagin used to say, eat the, eat the hay and spit out the sticks. Proverbs 19, 12, the king's wrath is as terrifying as the roaring of a lion. But the king's favor is as refreshing as dew upon the grass. You learn in any Bible school, whether if it's Karis or Rama or seminary, that the Bible interprets the Bible. Well, let's, let's go to a really common scripture, 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. We're talking about the Bible interpreting the Bible. You ask the average person, what's the definition of a roaring lion? They say the devil roars to put fear in you. Proverbs 19, 12. The king's wrath is as terrifying as the roaring of a lion. His favor is like dew on the grass. What it's saying in Proverbs is when God is angry, it's like the roaring of a lion. So when the devil goes around as a roaring lion, he wants to give you the impression or the suggestions that God is angry with you, rebuking you, not pleased with you, or condemning you in some way. And that God is not altogether pleased with you. When you're sitting under that kind of teaching, you've just been roared at by the devil. Anyone that suggests to you or gives you the idea, whether you read it in a book, listen in a sermon, attend a conference, or whatever kind of titles he has to his name, his or her name, but if they give you the idea that God is gonna judge you, that he's angry with you, that he's gonna hurt you in any way, I contend you've just been roared at by the devil. Just by the Bible interpreting the Bible. So let's look at our main Main scripture here, Isaiah 54, 9. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. Same kind of thing. Tammy saying, this is just as serious. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be wroth, wroth with thee, nor rebuke you. If you look up the word rebuke, 
in the Hebrew. The Old Testament is written in the Hebrew. This word does not mean correct. God does not correct you through car accidents, sickness, riots, and anarchy. He corrects you through his word. Whether reading it or listening to it being preached. You know, well, what about the Hebrews 12 where uh, God's going to chastise you, Jim? Get that one a lot. That word in the Greek means child training. Oh, so he's going to beat you. No, that's not how I train my child. I mean, what, they got, they got spanked up to the, maybe the age of four or five? Uh, it had to be a serious ordeal. How do you train your child? Words. Son, don't touch the stove. It'll burn you. Are you going to take his hand and put it on the stove to show him? Don't go out in the busy street. You train with words. Child, 99% of child training by any decent parent trains with words. And if God is calling himself such a great father in heaven, and he's going to turn around and hurt his children, well, the world puts fathers in jail for that. How How do you compare? So he, yeah, he corrects you through his word. Let, let me give you an example. Sometimes when, when the word comes forth, it can be painful. I remember the first time I heard John Bevere bait of Satan, where, where if you're offended, you've taken a bait from the devil. It's bait, that word offense. And I remember I left church, it was painful, realizing how many people I had to go to and fix things. You know what I mean? And, and, and trying to straighten that out with people because I had ought in my heart was not an easy thing. You know? That was correction from the pulpit. I remember uh, two of our top young pastors in the ministry, in my opinion, right now, I've worked with them for five or six years. And I was thinking back to how many times I've actually corrected them. And maybe it was a little painful, some of those conversations, especially when they were 19 or 20. Especially early on, it was a hard conversation. But you know what? I look at what they are now, and they, they, they receive that correction. The leaders they are now, even right now during this sermon, some people are getting corrections in their beliefs. Once you know the truth, it can set you free. But guess what? You have to know it. doesn't mean just hear it. You have to know it. The word rebuke in Isaiah 54, 9 is the same Hebrew word used in the Red Sea situation. The Bible says in Psalms, God rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. I want to look at that word rebuke in in Psalms to corrupt. It doesn't say correct. It doesn't say he's, gonna, he's not going to correct you. It says to corrupt or scold. You want to go real in detail? Corrupt means to debase. Scold means to speak out of anger. Another word in the Strong's was reprove means to censor or reprimand. He'll never do any of that to you. He'll never censor you, reprimand you, debase you, or speak out of anger to you is what that means. 
And Zechariah, the Lord said, I rebuke you to Satan. That's what he's talking about right there. He, he, he chided him. He spoke out of anger to him. He reproved him. He, he debased him. He reprimanded him. The word rebuke in Isaiah 54, 9 does not mean rebuke, but to chide or corrupt because the Lord will correct us with his word. Right believing eventually produces right results. You know how many Christians I know that have perished thinking God made them sick or even just thinking I'm not going to get my healing because he's not pleased with me. The Bible says you perish from a lack of knowledge. And that's why they perished, because they didn't know. They didn't know. Isaiah 54.10, right after 54.9, right after he swears not to be angry with you or rebuke you. For though the mountains should depart and the hills be shaken or removed, my love and kindness, kindness is the Hebrew word for grace called hesed, My love and my grace will not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace and completeness, doesn't it say in the new covenant you're completing him, will ever be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Mountains and hills are metaphors in the Bible for big problems. God said if you're established in New Testament righteousness, the mountains have to depart. Jesus said, speak to your mountain to be thrown into the sea. Throw it out. That's a picture of big problems. Notice this statement is sandwiched between, I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you, and my loving kindness shall not depart from you. He says his covenant of shalom peace will not be removed. Well, that's not the law. That's not the old covenant. God God calls the law a yoke of iron. A yoke, you know, what controls like an ox plowing a field. A yoke of iron is what he calls the old covenant. He never calls the law his covenant of shalom peace. And so I just, I want to, I want to close here by going to Isaiah 53, 3 through 12. We, they're trying an experiment with me. Because any time the sermon goes, once the sermon hits 40 minutes online, you have thousands of people just drop off. So don't leave. It's not, it's not going over 40. And so they want me to show Pastor Mac that more people watch online if the sermon's short. So this is what we're trying to do the next three weeks. We'll see what happens, huh? I've never done a 30-minute sermon in my life. I'm believing there's an anointing on this message that will cause God's living word to drop from your head into your heart like a coin into a slot. But let's look at Isaiah 53, 3 through 12 in the Amplified. He was despised and rejected and forsaken by men. Why? So you don't have to be. A man of sorrows and pains and acquainted with grief and sickness. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we did not appreciate his worth or have any esteem for him. Surely 
He has borne our griefs. You know what that word means in the Hebrew? Sickness, weakness, and stress. He carried your stress. Remember, he's sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does that come from? Stress. Maximum stress. He bore your stress. So you don't have to be stressed at this time the world is in. Listen to this. And carried our sorrows and pains. You know what pains mean? In the, Greek, or in the Hebrew, punishment. Carried your punishment. So why do you think you're going to be punished now? He carried all the punishment. Carried it. Yet we ignorantly considered him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. But he was wounded, verse 5, for our transgressions. He was bruised. You know what that means? Beat to pieces. Wasn't, he didn't actually have bruises. I mean, he probably did. But that word bruised in the Hebrew language means beat to pieces. The Bible says he was marred more than any man. The Bible says the people of Jerusalem who saw crucifixion all the time, right, monthly, weekly, walked by him and were astonished at what they saw. He was unrecognizable hanging on that cross. Those little pictures, you know, where his head's on a pillow, little blood coming out of it. He was covered in blood. The Bible says you could see his bones. It says in Psalms, he said, I can look down and see my bones because of the scourging. So he was beat to pieces. Why? Why was he beat to pieces? For your guilt. So you don't have to be guilty. And iniquities, the chastisement needful to obtain peace was upon him. And listen to this, verse 6. And we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has made to, to light upon him the guilt and iniquity of all of us was on him. He was oppressed, yet he was afflicted. He was submissive and did not open his mouth. Let's go to verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was judged so you don't have to be judged. Who among them considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken to death for the transgression, our transgressions of my people, to whom the stroke was due? What's due to us, he took. He died and took the stroke. So we don't have to get the stroke. They assigned him, I'm on verse 9, a grave with the wicked. Let's go to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to beat him to pieces. He has put him to grief. He made him sick in every way there is possible. When you and he make his life an offering for sin, and he is risen from the dead in time to come, he shall see his spiritual offspring. He's going to see you. He shall prolong his days, and the will and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, he shall see the fruit of the travail of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge of himself, which he possesses and imparts to others. Shall my uncompromisingly righteous one, my servant, that's Jesus. What does he do? He justifies many, that's us. And make many righteous, upright, and right standing with God, for he shall bear their iniquities. Now listen to this. And their guilt. You know what that means in the Hebrew? With their consequences. We don't believe that, do we? 
I would say a consequence is when you sin, he doesn't protect you anymore. The 50 times a day we sin, I had someone tell me, I sin twice, maybe once or twice a day. That's what I got it down to after many, many years. Really? <laughs> you drive 35 and a 35? The Bible says under the law, you have to obey the laws of the land. Worry and fear, fear is a sin. It says it in Revelation. Any, anything not done out of faith that says in Romans is a sin. So... <laughs> This thing, it's not just off when I go home and eat my large pizza. It's off all the time. And that's all you're worried about. Am I protected? You have no confidence. Let's look at verse 12. Listen to this. I'm going to pick up. He poured, I'm going to pick up down in the verse. Because he poured out his life unto death, he let himself be regarded as a criminal and be numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore and took away the sin of many. Took away your sin. You know, he was numbered with the transgressors. I can tell you, if you go to jail, I know from personal experience, I did not go last week, last month, or last year. But when I went to jail, you do, you get a number. You have to check in. There is a line. There is a line. Depending on which county you're in. All right. But, <laughs> but what I'm saying is, hell is the same way. He was numbered with the transgressors. There is 250,000 people die a day on this earth. And there's a line. And he stood in that line down there and got numbered and went straight into hell for us. I mean, Hebrews 8, 12. Can we look at this? then God must really be confused if he's going to be angry, if he's going to judge us, if he's going to hurt us in any way, because this is the second time he says this. He says it also in Hebrews 10. This is Hebrews 8, 12. It's the end of the new covenant. There is a new covenant that is listed in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 12. And it says, I will be merciful and gracious toward your sins. And I will remember your deeds of unrighteousness no more. How's he going to be mad at you if he can't remember what you did yesterday because he sees you through the eyes of Jesus? Hebrews 10, 17, quickly. He goes on to say again, he says it again. After he listed the the new covenant again, their sins and their law breaking, I remember no more. And then he goes on in the next verse, you know what? This is deep. This is deep. Now, where there is absolute remission, by him dying on the cross, you are remissed. Do you know what that means? It means that you not only have forgiveness, but cancellation for the penalty. And, and like, can we just go, I, we're going to close it right here by going to verse 22. This is why you can come forward and draw near with a true, honest, and sincere heart and just talk to him. You don't have to run away after you make a mistake with absolute conviction engendered by faith, just because you believe, having your hearts sprinkled and purified. Sprinkled and purified. Is that it? I think there was something about a conscience on that. From a guilty 
evil conscience. It actually calls a guilty conscience evil. Because if you're guilty for something you did, then you don't think what he did for you in Isaiah 53 is enough. And it zaps your faith. It zaps your authority. And so I, I just like to ask you guys if we could just bow our heads and close our eyes and I'm, I'm talking to you online. I just, I just wanna make sure and that, that, that everyone in here has the gift of righteousness, has the ability to receive grace, which is undeserved favor and the power of God on a daily basis, can have a, a relationship where you talk to him all day. And so I'm just asking, if, if, if you've never asked Jesus into your heart to be your savior, to be your Lord, or you feel like you need to do it now, would you raise your hand now? You know, if you're looking all around, somebody's not gonna raise their hand. Can we just, can we just bow our heads for like 15 seconds? I see that hand there. Thank you. Is there, is there, are there any other hands? And then online, let us know. I know it takes time because there's a minute delay. Let us know online. If you wanna take Jesus into your heart, to be your savior and be your Lord. Is there anyone else in here? I see the hand in the back, a second hand. Thank you, Lord. Second hand in the sanctuary. Two, three hands online. We have three hands online. Thank you, Lord. Three hands in the sanctuary. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And, I, and I'm just asking if you could just please repeat this prayer after me, because it's real simple. All you have to do to, to spend eternity with God is believe that he died and rose again. That's all you have to do. It says it over and over in the New Testament. So just repeat after me. Please repeat after me online also. Dear God in heaven, we believe Jesus is your son. We believe he died for our sins on the cross and was raised from the dead three days later. We ask you, Jesus, to come into our hearts, to be our Savior, and be our Lord. Thank you for saving us now. 